Right, so this morning, as Maria read for us, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 4. As we said at the beginning of this series on Deuteronomy, what we have is a series of sermons by Moses, uh, probably one of the grandest patriarchs in the Old Testament, and this is in the end of a sermon. If the first sermon in the book of Deuteronomy begins in chapter 1, it ends here in chapter 4. And then as each sermon is preached, there's a little narrative that has been put in by someone else along the way. So, uh, yeah, we're at the end of the sermon. So as uh, Maria was reading this, I hope that the words just kind of came out to you because uh, as all good preachers do, you end your sermon with a bang. You want your people who are listening or reading it to have an impression that this is serious. This is important. This is what we want you to walk away with. And in this concluding section in chapter 4, verses 32 through 40, that's essentially what is happening. For the rest of the chapter, they're basically just some historical footnotes, some references for their future. But this is where the real business of this sermon happens. Now, this is so important. And remember, we also said that these sermons, this book of Deuteronomy, was to be uh, included in a celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles that happened every seven years. And what would happen is people would pull out uh, a section of the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would read probably mostly from Deuteronomy, because even though there's a fuller explanation of what Moses is preaching on in this book, you could get a much longer explanation in the book of Numbers or Exodus or so forth. But Deuteronomy, uh, the sermons of Moses, are really little snapshots of what is happening. So every seven years, this would be pulled out in what is uh, today even still called the Sukkot. It is the celebration uh, for the nation of Israel. And the deal was is that all of Israel had to be together, every man, woman, and child. There's my flamboyant hand gestures. Every man, woman, and child had to be together as a nation in order for this uh, festival to happen. Well, as you know, Israel did not stay uh, obedient to the Lord. They went through many ups and downs. Eventually, the temple would be destroyed. Solomon's temple was destroyed. Um, Eventually, it was rebuilt under uh, Nehemiah. They started that structure. Uh, Herod would come along later and really make it grand. And by the time of Jesus's day, the temple was the focal point of the nation. Uh, Once again, they were celebrating Sukkot, you know, coming together to have, uh, is my mic out again? No, okay, good. Uh, Coming together to have a little celebration and read these sermons. However, uh, in 70 AD, that temple was destroyed, right? When the Romans came in, Under Tiberius, uh, they went ahead and just wiped it out. And to this day, the only thing remaining is basically the West Wall. But in 1945, this celebration picked up again because the nation of Israel, almost as important as having the temple there, was the fact that the nation hadn't existed until right after World War II. And so now all the people are gathered together and certain rabbis have made a supreme effort to get the rereading of the law, uh, the reminder of Moses' sermons put out before the people. And this chapter that we're reading, chapter 4, the ending part, 
is sometimes the focal point of those celebrations. So this isn't just some dusty uh, message that we're reading and that we're resurrecting in a sense from the ancient Near East. This is something that is playing a contemporary role in identifying the nation of Israel as the covenant people of God, right? It's a reminder of what he has done for them. And because that's the case, it also is part of our Christian tradition. Uh, coming up in September of this year will be the next celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, the next celebration of Sukkot, which is great. And from like September 20th to September 27th, all those that are gathered in Israel will get together and they're going to read from Deuteronomy. Now, I don't know if in our modern technology today that will be available on uh, any kind of uh, screens, but if it is, it would be fascinating to tune into it. Unfortunately for us, it will probably be read in Hebrew, right? And so I don't know how much edification there will come from that, but maybe they'll have closed captioning on the bottom. But whatever the case, we as believers in Jesus Christ are, can see that the application of this passage is so needed today. So as we go through this this morning, I'm going to keep pointing you to how it makes an impact for us as believers. Um, Maria read our passage for us. She did a great job, so let's just dive into it. This is one of the most striking and powerful passages in all of the Scripture. The conclusion of Moses' sermon is structured by giving us a verse of historical importance followed by a statement of truth, a theological point. This is a great pattern for you and I to get into in our lives. Moses is basically saying, remember this? This happened? Now, what kind of theological truth can we say because of that? We can do that in our own journaling. I don't know if you're a journaler or a writer. Uh, some might even call it a diarist. If whatever you're using, right, to write down things to remind you of what God has done in your life, in the lives of your family members, or the life of your church, what a powerful way to remember uh, who he is and what he has done for us. And then periodically going back, you don't have to wait seven years, but go back and reread that. In my own life, when I journal, um, I try to do that every day. And then around New Year's, I get that journal, no matter where I'm at in it, and I try to reread it so that I can be reminded. Sometimes I'm reminded of uh, things that God is correcting me on, right? Uh, things that he wants me to change in my uh, thought life, uh, in the words that I speak, in the manner in which I conduct myself. He's convicting me of my sin. And then there are other times in which I'm just focused on praising him, that in his mercy and his grace, he has just showered blessings upon me. That's what Moses is saying to his people. Don't forget this. This is something worth remembering. And because they didn't have writing instruments available to all of them as people, that was a pretty precious commodity in Moses' day, uh, very difficult to get a hold of. He was the one who was journaling for his people. He was the one entrusted with bringing back to their memory what God had done. So let's look at the first two verses, verses 32, 34, and I am going to uh, read through those first three verses. For ask now of the days that are past. Now, notice the word ask. 
That is going to be the structure of this entire passage. We're going to see three imperative commands, three uh, challenges to the listeners of this sermon. And the first one is to ask. Ask. It's not an option. It's not something he's suggesting. Uh, He is emphatically stating, ask. And remember who he's speaking to. This isn't just all the jumbled people of Israel that we have from our readings in the Old Testament and our memories of stories we learned in Sunday school. This is specifically the second generation of warriors, of people that had grown up in the desert because their parents had sinned and they wandered for 40 years, right? And now they're ready to go into the promised land. And so Moses is very understanding of the fact that he needs to ask them something. He needs to say to them, ask, and ask what? Well, let's see what he says. Ask now of the days that are past, right, which were before you. In other words, go back to your parents' generation. Since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, a little hyperbole, ask everywhere, ask everywhere, leave nothing unexhausted with your questions, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was heard of. What God did for the people of Israel. Did anyone else ever experience anything like this? Is this what we can understand happened to us, happened to no one else? If you don't trust me, ask. Ask. Uh, Basically, there are four questions here that Moses is telling them to ask. Has any great event like this ever happened before? Secondly, has anybody ever heard about anything like this happening before? Thirdly, has any people ever heard the voice of God? Uh, Look at that in verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Now notice he's jumping generations there. Has anyone else heard that voice of God? He's not just saying, remember what your parents experienced, but he's saying that you, you've heard this because they were children of the desert, of the wilderness. They saw that pillar of fire leading them on a daily basis as they trounced around out there waiting for their generation, their parents' generation to die uh, so that they might fulfill God's commission to take over this promised land. And he's saying, Has this ever happened before? Has anyone ever heard the voice of God? Fourthly, has any God dared to do what Israel's God has done in taking for himself one nation from the midst of another? And again, that's what he says there in verse 34. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? And how does he say he's done that? Well, Moses goes through explicit Uh, understanding and reasons and and actions that God has done in bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt by trials, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror. He seems to be going to all kinds of uh, extremes in trying to explain to the second generation that God has not given or reserved any part of his being in going to work for his people. You weren't there. You don't remember what it was like, life in Egypt, being a slave, right? Living in the land of the pharaohs. So when God came in there and carved this nation of Israel, 
due to the covenantal promises between God and Abraham, God and Isaac, God and Jacob, God and Joseph, I'm going to carve my people out. And I didn't just do this by snapping my fingers. I did this so that the people who were observing this would know that it was Jehovah working on their behalf. This was done by trials, by signs and wonders, by war. And, and just let me say this. Any time that God has gone to work, any time there's a major salvation history event, you can almost say these same things are happening, right? When Jesus came, weren't there not trials? Were there not signs and wonders? Were there not a mighty hand, an outstretched arm? God is doing that. And again, we are promised that when Jesus returns, we're going to see the same signs. We're going to see that God is doing the same things. Moses is detailing the means of deliverance that God used in order to impress upon the Israelites that nothing was too costly for God to keep his covenant love for his people. In other words, second generation getting ready to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land, you should be so grateful. You should feel so loved. No one else has gotten this attention from God. No one else has seen him go to bat for you like he has. You know, I grew up without a dad. You know, I, I, my dad died when I was two in a boating accident in California. And so for most of my life growing up, I watched other kids and their dads. And I can't tell you how many times I just thought, man, that would be so cool to have somebody go to bat for me. Like I just watched my friend's dad go to bat for them. I had a good friend who got in trouble at school one time. And just between you and I, he was guilty. <laughs> there was no question that he had done this. But his dad showed up in the principal's office the next day, and you would have thought this was the greatest injustice ever perpetrated upon any human being. This man went to town on that principal. And I remember driving home that day with that family and listening to the dad, and he was reaming out his son. Nevertheless, what he said to the principal was one thing. How he dealt with his son was another thing. And all I could think of is, wow. That would be great, you know. Have somebody just be on your side all the time. Um, how many times, you've probably seen this too, when you've gotten into a fight with somebody as a kid or you got, did something that was really stupid, and dads would come out of the house. You knew in our neighborhood, at least, that if something had reached the max level, if a dad had bothered to get up off the recliner, away from the TV, and come outside, a, a football was going to disappear, somebody was going to get yelled at, the whole neighborhood composite would just be disrupted for that moment. Israel had a dad. These guys going across the Jordan, their dad was going with them. And Moses is saying, ask. See if you can hear the stories of what God has done for his people. In other words, never forget them. You're not going by yourself. This isn't on you. And those Israelites, they were reminded that the Egyptians, the culture that they came out of, it had many gods. See, that was the problem here. That's why Moses is making this distinction to ask, to think about this, to remember it, because he didn't want them to be stuck in the patterns that all of the people groups around them were stuck in. 
which was worshiping many gods. Uh, the Egyptians' culture was full of idols. Uh, most were represented by hybrids of humans and animals. Uh, we have some slides today of some uh, Egyptian gods. Amazingly, as I was preparing this sermon two weeks ago, uh, National Geographic put out an issue in their history magazine of the gods of Egypt, right? Um, I think you're looking at them. But if you'll notice how many of them have an animal head and a human body, or a human head and an animal body. But these animal gods were supposed to represent the different forces in the life of the common Egyptian, right? You have Horus, who looks like an owl, right? He has an owl head. He's so wise. Uh, you have a scorpion woman. Uh, most of us are familiar with the Sphinx in Egypt. We've seen pictures of that, the lion body and the uh, head of a woman uh, carved there. We, there's just so many things that they did, and they would attribute everything to them. Hathor, the cow god, which watched over livestock, uh, Ray, the sun god, Sek, who would guard the entrance into the afterlife. Everything they did, everything that they did was because of these gods. And that's what the Israelites came out of. That was the culture they came out of. No wonder that during the plagues that God inflicted upon the Egyptians, uh, they were directed, they weren't just random. God didn't just say, well, I'll turn the Nile into blood, I will uh, infest you with frogs, with lice, with biting flies, uh, disease of your cattle, and so forth. They were direct confrontations of each of these gods, right? At least the major gods. So when he turned the water into blood, it went directly against Hafi, right? The bull god of the Nile, or Isis, the goddess of the Nile. If you put in the frogs, it went against Heket, who was the goddess of birth with a frog's head. When he diseased their livestock, it went against their goddess of the cows. And it was a symbol of fertility. In each case, it's a power struggle. Your idols against Jehovah God. Who's going to win? And that's where the way that people in that day and age used to think. I have to appease so many different gods. I have to worship them. I have to give to them. I have to sacrifice for them. And Jehovah God came into the Israelites and said, no, that's not the way it's going to be in our economy. We're not necessarily going to do that. What we're going to do is keep our focus on the one God. And even in the 10th plague, if you want to think of it that way, the death of the firstborn, that went directly against Min, the god of reproduction, uh, who attended women at childbirth. But also, even more importantly, the firstborn son of Pharaoh was considered to be a god in his own right. In his death at the hand of Jehovah's angel of death that spoke volumes to those people. And eventually Pharaoh said, I've had enough. You may go. And Moses does not want his people to forget that. This is the culture that you could have been raised in. This is the, the belief system, these gods, the ridiculousness of them that your children would have been raised in. But he said, God delivered you from that. And then we get to our first statement of truth, right? He says, uh, I want you to know that the Lord is God. 
Yahweh is Elohim, the different names for God. Yahweh, the very personal name of God, your God Israel is Yahweh. And he is the powerful God. Now, Ray, the Egyptian god of the sun, and others took that supreme position. But Ray's kingdom was left in a bunch of wreckage of chariots in the Red Sea, right? That's how they would think. That he could do nothing to help hit the Pharaoh and his charioteers. He could do nothing to stop the Israelites from getting away from their slavery. Think of all the major national public works that came to a screeching halt when the land of Goshen was emptied of the Israeli slaves. And God himself is saying, through Moses, I want you to remember, I am God. And he makes an emphatic conclusion to that, and he says, there is no other. Booyah! Right? Say it with me. Booyah! That's right. There is no other. And I'm trusting that the Israelites listening to this, getting ready to go across the Jordan River, there was a clashing of shields and a raising of spears because that was their God. They're so excited. No one is greater than our God. You were shown, Moses said, so that you might know Yahweh is the God of gods. There is no other. We get into another historical statement in verse 36 as Moses continues with his uh, sermon here, his conclusion. He says, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you up out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Wow. Don't forget that, right? He let, I love that, he let you hear his voice. He didn't ask you. He didn't give you, like, permission. He came to you. The idea here is that because we're a family, um, you get to hear his voice. Now, I was raised with babysitters my whole life, and sometimes this family, sometimes that family, sometimes that family. And no matter how people appear in public, in society, when we get behind closed doors, we hear a different voice, don't we? I certainly act differently with my wife when we're alone. I say things that I probably would never say out in front of other people. But God is saying, listen, I'm letting you into my home. The door is closed. Only you get to hear my heart. I'm letting you know how I feel. And what does he do sometimes? He says, I discipline you. Now, you might be sitting there thinking this morning, ooh, what a privilege. <laughs> Who wants to be disciplined by God? This is supposed to awaken worship in my soul? Actually, yes. Because that tells you that you belong. No one else gets that privilege. Oh, yes, God, he rains destruction, fire and brimstone down upon pagan peoples, disobedient peoples. But to his children, he disciplines them. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, 
for the Lord disciplines him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. That's also repeated, and it's a a repetition of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. What a privilege to be disciplined by your father. Uh, There are those knowing me from my childhood that would have argued I could have used a little fatherly discipline growing up. That is certainly true. But to have a dad that loves you that much. Now, some of us, we had parents that didn't do this right. The idea of discipline is put together with the idea of abuse. And we can't distinguish that. But in this case, this is the best. This is sterling discipline. This is a God who does know all the facts. He knows all the sides of the situation. And he's coming into his people and he says, I want you to grow up and be these people. I want you to be a holy nation unto me. I want you to be an imitation of the God that you worship. In other words, a dad would say to his son, son, I want you to be a Foster, right? I want you to be a Hanson. I want you to be an Elliot. I want you to be a McDonald. I'm going to teach you how that works, all right? This is why we're doing this. This isn't that I get any great delight out of doing this, but it's, we need discipline because we're fallen people. It's once again a statement of very intimate relationship, only reserved for someone's closest relationship, a child, and not just any child, but a child that a father delights in, right? He lets you, again, not just hear his voice, but to see his great fire. No one else got to see that, just Israel. Further, not only did you get, in a sense, to meet God, but that relationship means you will benefit by his direction, his empowerment, and his lifting of you above all other peoples. That's another booyah, right? That is great. So twice now, Moses has told his people, due to these historical truths, you now can identify as being somebody pretty special, right? Uh, You could even argue that the Israelites were the most special people in that time period, and really for centuries before and after. God was in their midst. God had identified them without explanation, without rationale. He just did and said, I will be your God. The Israelites, when they heard this sermon for the first time, this second generation of Israelites probably looked back over their shoulder at the river Jordan and into the land of Canaan, which they were just about to go into to face fierce tribes made up of giants and did an immediate application of this sermon of Moses's by thinking, this means God's going to be with us and he's going to drive out any nation we face. Amazing. And then we come to our second statement of truth, right? I want you to know, right? Now, there's your second imperative, by the way. The first one was ask. The second one is to know or acknowledge. I want you to know the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The Lord is God in the heavens above. And this is a figure of speech. It's like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's not trying to make a statement about this is exactly God's created sphere. He's just saying everything God created. And basically, he's saying the same thing here. The Lord is God everywhere. You can't go far enough away 
in your conquest. You can't run from God. He says that over and over again in scriptures. Where shall you hide um, from God? You can't do it. And then he gives that emphatic statement again. There is no other. There's no other God. All those idols that you were looking at, they don't exist. They're not real. There's only one God. And then he says, lay it to your heart. I love that phrase. To lay it to your heart basically means to return. The verb there means come back. Think about what you're doing. Think about who I am in relationship to you. Lay it on your heart. Don't ever forget it. Uh, my mom, even though I didn't have a dad, did a great job of reiterating truths about life to my brother and I. We would go over and over certain statements that she thought communicated value to us. Uh, it was not uncommon for her to ask us almost daily, what would a foster do? What do fosters do? We do that as parents. And that's what God wants us to do in relationship to him. Lay it on your heart. Never forget it. Ask. Have you anybody else ever had this experience before? Has anyone else had God's direct intervention in their life? Secondly, acknowledge or know who God is, and then lay it on your heart. More just a, than just a thought in your brain, it should come upon its remembrance, stir your inmost part of your being, so that when we're tempted, when we're tempted to think God doesn't care, life is too hard, we'll remember. We'll remember and we'll know who it is that we're serving. And then this section ends with a great application statement right? Verse 40. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. We've had that phrase over and over again in this first sermon. Statutes and rules or statutes and commandments, which I command you today. So even though these were given to maybe your parents, like the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, uh, and again repeated in Deuteronomy 5, which I give to you, the second generation today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Tremendous promises, right? I want this to be your identity. The way that you live your life should reflect me and our relationship. Does your life today reflect your identity in Christ? Does your relationship with God, known to anyone that runs into you, that knows you, is your family shaped along those lines so that people would say, hey, there's something different about you. There's something different about your family. There's something different about this church. You guys must be Christ followers. That's what they should see when they see us. And God is saying that to the Israelites. When the Israelites come into the promised land, everyone should know that they are not like the Egyptians. They're not like the Ammonites. They're not like the Hittites. They don't worship Chemesh or Ashtoreth or any of the other idols. They worship one God, Jehovah. Yahweh is Elohim, and there is no other. And he says, if you do this, you're going to flourish. I want this, as he says in verse 40, for your life to go well, right? Not just for you but also for your kids. And then he says, and you will have a prolonged life. Now we read that today, and we read it as individuals. Wow, if I obey God, 
I'm going to live a long time. But that's not the focus of this verse. He's talking to the Israelites. He's saying prolong life corporately as a nation. If you obey my commands, you'll get to stay in the land that I've given you that you haven't earned in any way whatsoever, but you'll get to stay there and be part of me for a long time. Well, unfortunately, what we know is this second generation, before they die, have already begun to allow the idol worship of the neighboring tribes to seep into their culture. It didn't go that long. But God still loves them. God loves his people. And one of the things we see in this section, even though it's not explicitly stated, is there is the concept of love. God loves his people. And that is said earlier in this chapter. Love is, in the book of Deuteronomy, a covenant commitment demonstrated in actions that serve the interests of the other person. So let me say that again. Covenant commitment is demonstrated in actions that serve the interests of the other person. We basically do that in a, in a wedding, right? People come back and they get married and so forth. But when they're up there getting married, they're making a covenant. When we go through life, we're looking to the needs of that other person. The cool thing about this is that the notion of love is virtually absence from the vocabulary of divine human relationships in the ancient Near East. You don't see that in any other place. So, as we end this, let's think about this. What can we say about this section of Scripture? Well, we could rewrite this, couldn't we? We could rewrite it as if it was written for us in Christ. Let me do that for you. Ask now, just as it starts there, ask now of the days that are past, which were before you. So even as believers, let's ask and see what our ancestors, see what people that we know who walk with God can tell us. Since the day that God created humankind on earth and asked from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of, did any people ever encounter their gods directly as you have encountered him and still live? Or has any God ever dared to invade the kingdom of darkness and take for himself a people from the midst of that kingdom by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, all of which Jesus Christ, your God, has done for you on the cross before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, God. There is no other beside him. Out of heaven he came as the divine word that he might reveal the Father to you and on earth he revealed his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Know therefore today, lay it to your hearts that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power according to his glorious might, for all endurance, patience with joy, and giving thanks to the Father. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It just uh, thrills our hearts when we think of the fact that just as you rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, so you've rescued us out of sin. Father, you've gone to no end of 
extremes to bring us to the place where we need to be today. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, go through our life, that you would help us to just walk in a way that is faithful, to be obedient to you. You love obedience. It is our prayer, Father, that we'll acknowledge that your son, Jesus Christ, is Yahweh, that he cares for us, that he leads us. And as we seek to do his great commission in sharing our faith with others, as we seek to love one another in the great commandment, Father, I pray that we will follow his leading. Lord, we thank you for your discipline in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you care for us so much. Father, we reject all idols that creep into our hearts and to our minds. And we will serve you and you alone, for there is no other. In Jesus' name, amen.